houses and huts were despoiled The wolf huffed and puffed till the pigs cried enough How can this wicked monster be foiled? Two piggies were eaten before he was beaten Down the chimney the wolf was hard boiled It's no wonder why All right, Jeff. Well, you know me. This are, these are my co-hosts, Angelique, Daniel, and Nicholas here. Hi, hey, Jeff. Hi. And this is the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. We got a special guest with us here today, the director of Dead Time Stories, Mr. Jeff Delman. Jeff, how the hell are you? I'm I'm doing well, all things considered. Zoom call being one of them, but uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks. So, usually how we start these things off is I'm just going to give you the floor, and we're in the dark, and you're just going to tell us, how, was there any performance? Did you watch something as a kid that you just saw? and you're like, man, I got to make a movie. Yeah, what got you into wanting to make films? You know, uh, when I was five, I, I saw Abbott and Costello meets uh, Frankenstein. And it just, it freaked me out and I loved it. it uh, I, I remember having a nightmare after seeing it about this this wolf man and I was tied to a chair and this other guy was tied to a chair and he turned into a wolf man. This was like a five, okay? Mm-hmm. And I woke up with that that mixture I think we all get when we see a good horror film of panic and dread and ecstasy. And that kind of, uh, that's, that feeling stuck with me. My question for you, Jeff, is, uh, this is Daniel. I, I was just curious because, all right, when you say Abbott and Costello and it terrified you now, like my experience whenever I watch horror, I saw the fog at entirely too early of an age. And I saw uh, aliens at entirely too early of an age. So I, I know what you mean. Like when you get that, that thrill and that excitement and you're also scared as hell, but then, you know, it's like immediately it's like, that was awesome. So, I mean, yeah. Did you get that with Abbott and Costello as well? I mean, because obviously well, Dead just, Time Stories is so funny. So was it something about the comedy that also impacted you as well as the horror? Or I, I think that's probably true. I, I think, I mean, the thing is, when you think about it, like horror and comedy are, and this is me, you know, as a grown up, not as a little kid, but they're very similar. They're, it's all about timing. It's pacing. It's set up, build, payoff. If the timing's off, the hard shock doesn't work. If the timing's off, the gag doesn't work. So I think there is a, a, a something in common between, with the two uh, genres, and I think that's why horror and comedy, in particular, mix really well. I understand. Right. In a lot of ways, it's like that's kind of also a coping mechanism for people. It's like when you see yeah. something, someone get gutted with a chainsaw, one person might be like, ah! <laughs> but then somebody's <laughs> going like, <laughs> and I mean, yeah. Some, Sometimes that's how they kind of have. That's how you have to deal with it. I I could see it. <laughs> yeah, Jeff, are you a fan of horror anthologies yourself? Growing up? Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing uh, uh, the original Tales from the Crypt when I was a kid. It was a, uh, I think it was British, and it uh, had like Killer Santa Claus and all that cool mm-hmm. stuff in it. I was probably middle school, and I I really loved it. And when I when I was at NYU, I knew I wanted to make a film, and I knew that horror was a, was a good genre to work in, and I also I knew that I probably couldn't get uh, enough money together to do a whole feature. So we actually shot Dead Time in sections. Uh, no you know, we'd, we'd have some money, we'd shoot, we'd run out of money. I'd get a job as, as an, you know, uh, an office temp and put together enough money to shoot some more. And we really, I mean, we were getting favors. 
we did it on really a bare bones budget. We, we were able to get a, a Panaflex camera, which is really cool. We shot up 35 millimeter, which is pretty cool. But the labor, the props, uh, the, 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 cat, the actors, it, everything was deferred, except for the special effects. We paid for those because that stuff, you know, it was expensive to do. And we got, I mean, you know, Ed French was amazing. And, uh, you know, I was able to do a lot with very little. What uh, what inspired Dead Time? I mean, you say you like the anthology, like Tales from the Was it just Tales from the Crypt? Or, I mean, where did you pull, like, the whole idea conceptually and everything from? Well, with, I mean, with, with, with Dead Time in particular, I was really into fairy tales. And at a young age, it occurred to me that fairy tales were really scary. But, you know, you tell them to kids and you, you sort of soft pedal the real horror. But, um, you know, they're really fairy tales are about our anxieties. You know, it's like Red Riding Hood is about sex. You know, really, in the, in the original story, it's Red Riding Hood gets into bed with you know, grandma mm-hmm. and goes, gee, grandma, you're kind of big and hairy and scary. And it's, you know, it's really obvious what the subtext was there. And same thing with, you know, Goldilocks is about, um, I mean, it's originally about sibling rivalry, but it's really about strangers. So I just took those elements and then went for the horror, I think, to, to various uh, various levels of success, depending on the story. But either fun or horrific. I mean, it, I just watched the movie last night, so it's it's fresh in my mind. I mean, uh-huh. either way, maybe maybe when it first came out, it's just one of those that's slow growers. You just had to sit there and wait a little bit, let it incubate for a while. I absolutely loved it last night. I thought it was funny as hell. Like the set pieces in that first, I'm going to go ahead and just hit you with that one. The set pieces for <laughs> sure. the, first, the witches in the cemetery, man. How'd y'all pull that off? You know, that was shot in my backyard. Wow. With, uh, oh, with, oh my yeah, God. With, with like cardboard tombstones and we had a, uh, a, 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 what do you call it, a dry ice machine to get yeah. some fog. Um, you know, but we, we had a great art department. There's a lot, I mean, especially like today, young filmmakers, we had to get a camera, we had to get buttload of lights, we had to get film. Film was expensive to buy and to process and to print and to cut. Young filmmakers today, they have the camera. You know, it's not... It's not a big deal to find a halfway decent uh, digital camera, and you don't need that you know, that many lights. And it's just what can you do with with your creativity? And we had a very creative team, and uh, we were lucky enough to have things that had, uh, I think, some some visual power to them. Yeah, that again, just that set piece off that first one. That was incredible when I saw that. Yeah, last that was night. fun to shoot. Yeah, the the, the, scene, the scene where we have uh, the the Scott Valentine character, and then the um, the the preacher walking through an orchard we shot that it had just snowed and it was about 20 degrees and it was this orchard in in westchester county and the truck on its uh, going to location hit a i think it was a plank in the road and it snapped the axle <laughs> and it was wow. it was one of the one of those filmmaking hell days but it was also it was just so much fun because when everything goes wrong and you still get the shot and the shot yeah. I, I think it's those shots were among the most beautiful some of the shots were in a hurry and they weren't quite as uh, as beautiful as I would have liked but the shots there are really kind of cool I think you can look at the stills and put them in a frame and say that's a pretty picture uh, so you know you you get stuff that really works even if it the days the, the the problems that you have in the days getting them you forget once you look at the uh, the stuff on screen it is a credit to being to shooting the movie on film as opposed to digital as a composer uh, Nicholas can attest to this is that when you do music digitally it's so clean and pretty 
pretty, but whenever you put it on tape, there's a saturation, a warmth that it adds, but also you maybe gloss over some slight imperfections. So yeah. I mean, the beauty of your, yeah, like if you say there's some really good shots, I mean, the beauty of it is that unless you are really eyeballing those mistakes, that tape saturation that's over the whole film, it actually works. It just, it looked, it, I could tell it was an indie film and yet it was so cool. It just, it's one of those that did it right because it catches you, brings you in. It's an anthology. So was, maybe that might even be the allure of it because you kind of, you never know with an anthology. One of them might be hokey. One of them's going to be really scary. One of them's going to be middle ground. You know, they'll kind of follow that pattern sometimes with it. Sometimes they're right. funny. Sometimes the whole thing goes for the throat. So it's just something about the anthology going to stick with it. That and the wraparound. You always got to see the wraparound to the finish. Right. Well, my, my, my purpose in making it was to be kind of like a showreel to show that I could do something that was kind of serious and something that was out and out funny and something that was kind of in between. Uh, so it was... And actually, when we were taking it to distributors, when we had just, we, I think we, we hadn't even locked the final edit, but people were asking who the other directors were because, you know, the pieces were so different in tone. Wow. Uh, so, you know, and that was, I think, one of the benefits of Anthology. Certainly, yeah. That, wow, that's cool. It, now that you mentioned that, and it, I hadn't even thought of that. Well, go on and ask him, Justin. I know you were curious about something. with the Okay, wizard. Jeff. Can you, you touched on it a little bit, but that scene in the first story when the witch's sister is being resurrected, can you touch on the effect? in that scene like how do you guys pull that off because that's a gnarly scene yeah that was ed french's idea uh he's a you know as i said it's just a terrific uh special effects makeup guy and he was thinking that we could do it all in reverse so it's all reverse photography so you know we actually he built the skeleton and then he and his assistant Bryant Tossick Bryant went on to do the other two segments the uh, uh Red Riding Hood and Goldilocks segment uh, but they created the skeleton and then they created this kind of cocoon to put over the skeleton and then they they painted it with you know this this really gross gloppy shit and then uh, <laughs> and then they sculpted these worms and you know they, they did all that stuff and then we just printed a lot of it backwards so we wrapped the worms around the skeleton for instance and then just slowly pulled them away and then you can so printed and reversed, it looks like the uh, the worms are moving up the skeleton. And the, the one transition he, he hadn't quite figured out was going from the muscle face to the, to the skin on Magoga. Mm -hmm. And we were shooting, this was like, this was a 24 hour day getting this one effect because it just was so labor intensive. It shows though, and like it's a good effect. It, it, was, it, was, it was Christmas Eve and we didn't have that final effect. And he and, and Ed figured, well, you know, we could just kind of cut from the face of, you know, once the eyeballs come up and everyone freaks out, then we can cut to the, to the woman on the tape, the actress in makeup just started to move. And I felt like we, we just, we were missing a little something. So we actually went out and we got uh, baking soda and vinegar. Remember those old experiments in um, you know, third grade when you spray baking soda and vinegar? So we, we, we got some baking soda and we mixed in green food coloring to create kind of a green paste. And then a bunch of us stood over this skeleton as it's kind of writhing and sprayed vinegar on it off camera. And so you so the vinegar dissolved the baking soda and then we ran it backwards. And so what you see is is the skin starting to form and the, the reverse footage of the of the um, spray going down looked like it was smoke coming up. So it was really cool. And that was like, that was a 30 cent 
<laughs> effect. I I'll love it. I love it. That's, That's the kind of guerrilla stuff we're into. <laughs> yeah. That, oh, yeah. It's, it, well, I, I actually, I went on to work for Roger Corman, and we had this one effect we had. Actually, it wasn't even an effect. It was a scene where this guy was supposed to be banging on a door, and I had a crew of me and a, and the uh, the DP, and we were all uh, who was there, and I was supposed to, there's there something else going on, and we didn't have an actor. We didn't have anybody to stand in for an actor, so we, we, we rolled up some newspapers, put them in a pair of pants, stuck them in a set of shoes, and then just <laughs> stuck them, and that was, you know, it, it, when you're dealing with no money, it's amazing what you have to come up with. <laughs> well, necessity is the mother Amen of invention, that. that's for sure. <laughs> that's awesome. We can all agree that one of the best things about Dead Time Stories is is the music, which we all love. So, Jeff, did you have a, do you have a musical background? I know you wrote most of the lyrics for uh, most of the songs in the film, so how's, how's that? Yeah, work? you know, I, I, I didn't. I, I used to make up songs when I was a kid. I played a little bit of guitar, but wasn't very, you know, wasn't very good at it. And I had wanted to use that song, uh, uh, Hey There, Little, Little Red Riding Hood, for the opening credits. And we just, we didn't have the money to license it. And so the composer, Larry Juris, who I think just did an amazing job with, again, no money. He said to me, um, can you come up with something? Because, you know, unless you just want music, if you want a song, you're going to have to come up with the song. So I just, I sat down and wrote the lyric. And he said, these are great. And just wrote all the lyrics for we had um, uh, for the Goldilocks segment the song that uh, with that song Looney Bin is was originally <laughs> the, the, the song uh, Surfer Bird. Do you know that song? Everybody's oh, heard yes. about the bird. Oh, and yeah. that was supposed to be um, that was the original uh, cut, but we couldn't afford that. And then after Goldie has her orgasm, uh, and we hear the song "It's Him," the original song that was there was uh, "I Will Follow Him." You know that old '60s song. And I think actually I think I put that stuff online somewhere because I I don't own the music, but I thought people should at least see the cut. So that's probably on the YouTube somewhere. I have a soft spot in my heart for people for composers. I'm one, but I just when uh, movies when movies use when they specially specifically make a song based on their movie and use the title of the movie as the title uh, of their song. I mean it's just when you get like Doc in with Dream Warrior when you got the uh Texas the Leatherface song they did a song about Leatherface uh, Armored Saint did that Hellraiser song in uh, Hellraiser 3 it just mm-hmm. I mean hell I've done it with some of my stuff so the fact that you write a song called Dead Time Stories and had the wherewithal to open your movie with it as just that is fantastic but then like the the synth work i was just talking about it before you logged on the the opening scene when you're doing the riff on halloween and you've got the it shows the pov walking through the house man that the synthesizer work through that that's my jam that's that early 80s john carpenter me stuck in a house late at night sitting in front of the tv watching a movie i shouldn't be watching that that stuff resonates with me and this i was letting justin know is that like the music in this whole film i mean it goes from like abs and i'm not saying this as an insult it's covering the entire spectrum it's like you've got everything from top shelf like scoring all the way down to the corny bottom shelf just goofball cue and then everything in between the sultry one one freaking movie yeah (laughs) you just covered all of that in one movie and so you said that like you wrote the lyrics and stuff you didn't do any of the composition was that just the uh the other guy that you had mentioned yeah larry juris who wrote all the music for the movie i wrote the lyric wrote the music for the songs what i did though is um i I would use when i write lyrics because i actually went on to have a career writing jingles based on that (laughs) because i thought oh (laughs) nice this is something i can do um uh so i uh 
what I'll do, it, unless somebody gives me a melody to write to, and I do work with composers and I'll get melodies and they'll be like a, uh, like a, a, a piano track to show what the, what the, yeah, the lyric and the syllable pattern should be. Mm -hmm. But if I don't have that, then I'll just write a song to an existing song, you know, a pop song or something I just happen to have. So like, um, well, here's, a, here's an interesting little bit of trivia. The, the, the Looney Bin song mm -hmm. I wrote to the, to the tune of um, a uh, one of the songs from Phantom of the Paradise. The one oh, that, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, what's her name? The actress, uh, Jessica Harper, sings, mm -hmm. caught up in your wheel and dealing, you've got no time left for simple feelings. And and I wrote, life these days can be a, a, be a stress, let daily decisions lead to, no, life these days can be a mess, daily decisions lead to stress. You could actually sing the lyrics of Ludie Bin to the song that Paul Williams wrote. And Brilliant. So, <laughs> okay. so that's how, so I, I gave, I gave Larry these lyrics that were already in a, uh, you know, a, a musical pattern. Mm -hmm. So he was able to just compose a melody to it based on the mood because the, the, the lyric pattern was, had its own rhythm that worked uh, for a song. That, and, if you, and feel free to edit out my singing for the podcast. No, no. <laughs> I would never, never from claim hip, to be a man. singer. <laughs> no, no, from the hip. It's the, it's genuine. <laughs> we prefer it that yeah. way. <laughs> you are also involved in one of my favorite creature features, the nest. Um, yes. Yeah. What brought you into that one? Uh, Julie Corman. Okay. I, I was I, I was hired by by uh, by the Cormans. I was supposed to actually direct a feature, and mm -hmm. then I uh, then I just had a kid, and I couldn't. I was supposed to go to uh, uh, I don't know the Philippines, and I passed oh, by. Wow. But but I was working. I was doing second unit for for Roger cool. and Julie. Yeah, I worked um, on the remake of of uh, Mask of the Red Death, and I think that Saturday the Fourteenth Strikes Back. But the ne the nest was my favorite. I, I shot all the cockroach footage, which was. <laughs> amazing and uh, ultimately disgusting <laughs> <laughs> we um the, the the animal wrangler had a bunch of kids and they would go to venice with jars and these little you know little nets and, and cat hundreds of cockroaches each evening so we could shoot during the day and you know not only was <laughs> Was it just really disgusting? Um, we ended up infesting the uh, the Corman studio. They had to get a, uh, oh, a no. <laughs> but, but the thing is, like you know, I was always kind of cool with bugs and stuff. Like I wasn't. I'm not bothered by snakes and mice and whatever. And I was completely cool with the cockroaches. And then after like a week or two, I just I was I I can't look at them now. I was like I get so disgusted by them. It, it was I can imagine. The effect. Oh And they wow. smell terrible when you have like a right. million of them and in a box they smell horrible yeah so while those weren't like hollywood cockroaches those were off the street those were off the yeah Real i mean they were just <laughs> the kind of cockroaches that scurry when you turn the light on in your house and they go and hide somewhere so how did how did you guys get them to obey i guess <laughs> Uh, well, they didn't. Some of the shots, there was the long shot where we wanted them to all go in a certain direction. And what we ended up doing was we just got a bunch of black marbles. A bunch of people just rolled them. Because when you, you know, have a long shot and you see these black things moving, you can't tell what they are. Sure. Because you just, you just see, you know, colors uh, in motion. I'll be damned. And some of them were plastic, you know, if you wanted them on a specific spot. And then some of them, like, you know, we would just put like a little bit of peanut butter on a toothbrush and then just sit there and turn the camera on when a cockroach climbed up the toothbrush to get to the peanut butter. You know, just, Dude. yeah, disgusting. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 
Jeff, how'd you get involved with Friday the 13th part two? I called up, a friend of mine was was hired as an assistant editor. He, uh, actually I worked on part one for about three days. I, I, I painted the uh, the pantry that Adrian King hides in at the last scene. I, I painted oh, the shelves cool. green. Awesome. So next time you see it, you can really notice the good painting job I did. And it's they, a they beautiful actually, pantry. Thank you. <laughs> I painted it, you know. Uh, they, um, so I, I was hired as a, as a, uh, an art PA on part one. It actually wasn't called part one, of course, it was called part of the 13th. And then um, this was a summer before, I think it was my, before my senior year at school. And then um, they ran out of money or they had some kind of problem. They had to shut down and I had to go back to school. So I wasn't able to finish the film. And then I heard they were doing a sequel the next year. And then I, I called the, the line producer and I said, oh, you know, you know, I'm at a school now. Is there, is there a place for me? So I was hired as a set PA and a driver. And what was really cool is that I got to uh, hang out and watch the effects as they were being done. Oh yeah, And that was great. And I actually have, I had video video footage of the gag where the, the spear goes through uh, the couple in the bed and uh, nice. the tape is like destroyed unfortunately but I also I've got a bunch of stills of of the original makeup application for Jason and uh, so it was really it was it was a fun shoot and just the cast and the crew everyone was great it was like it was it was a oh, yeah. it was a party you know you always hear that <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was hard work, but everyone was really nice. Everyone enjoyed each other's company. You know, there's one scene where, I think his name was Russell, forget his last name. He played the guy that, that got caught in the um, the foot trap and got his throat slit. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that. He had 103 fever. He was sick as a dog that day. God. And um, it was, but it was the first effect of the film. So like everybody wanted to show up. And so we're all like gathered around and we hadn't seen any effects done. And then, you know, he's, he's there and he's hanging. They had these two, uh, a, you know, A-frame ladders and then uh, some uh, two by fours between the ladders and they put some cushions on the, on the two by fours. So he's actually hanging upside down with his, with his, uh, by his knees and people are holding him uh, just out of frame. And then the director, Steve Miner, says action, and we see the seat you of know, the, the wooden fake knife go across his throat, and it reveals the cut. And then they hit a switch, and there's you see this you know red liquid going through this tube down his pants, You know, then it goes under his shirt, and suddenly it goes just spraying out. And it, the, what, what was so weird was that even though we could see how fake it was, just to see it, blew everyone away. And you know, you'd think after an effect, a great effect like that, people would clap, but it was so, just struck a nerve in everyone. And people just, it, when it was over, nobody said a thing. It was like, it was silent. I never forgot that. You know, it's the power of, of these effects. Even, you know, they're fake, right? but there's something that just, just reaches in and, and grabs you on some primal level. That's, so that was kind of a cool experience to Dude. really see how that worked. Back then, did you have any idea, any inkling that Friday would become what it did, what it has become now? I mean, did it feel like that back then on set? They sort of, I mean, part one did really, really well. And part two was shot, there was a big actor strike. Uh, the SAG went out on strike. And so there, there were only a couple of productions that were actually allowed to go on. And I don't know how they were able to do it because Paramount actually put up the money, but it wasn't a Paramount production. And so there was through some kind of wrangling, they were able to make a deal to make this movie when no one else was making the movie. So part of the best, so I think part of what worked, I mean, we knew that because part one worked, that, mm -hmm. that there would be sequels. And as we were shooting part two, it was pretty clear that it was going to also work. But part of the, I think, the lightning in a bottle for Friday the 
the 13th was that it happened to be released at a time where there were no other movies coming out. Right. So the numbers were, I think, a lot bigger than the film itself really justified. Uh, but, um, you know, I think because of that, and it was, you know, it was, it's well done. I'm not taking anything away from right. it. But there were right. also a lot of other good films that were coming right. out around the same I understand. time. But there was a, it came out in the middle of a desert. And mm-hmm. I think that really helped uh, you know, launch its its prominence in a way that it might not have. Sometimes it's good to be the first one, you know, even if it's yeah. not the well, best one, Halloween. it's good to be the first one, you know? Yeah. I mean, Halloween was the first. And, you know, I, mean, I, I the original Carpenter Halloween, I think, is has not been surpassed. I, I think a lot of films kind of do some interesting things. But his the way he just reinvented the psycho genre. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are shots, I still look at it, and, and there are shots where the composition is kind of a little bit off a lot of negative space maybe there's a cabinet that's just three inches open over you know somebody's head and you don't really pay attention to that stuff on a on a conscious level but i think if you look at every frame there's there's the potential for something to jump out of somewhere and and you know and that kind of artistry is uh, i think not respected enough by the, the mainstream i mean we who love horror or understand how it works or you know, can see the artistry and understand the hard work and the thought mm-hmm. that goes into it. It's like Stephen King. Right. You know, he, his, he's such a good storyteller and he's really able to, to touch nerves of um, issues that we all have, you know, but but just express it in a way that really reaches out. You know, I mean, for me, Shining is about a little boy and his dad. And all little boys see their dads as loving. I mean, not all, but... Mm-hmm. Um, but I think most of us, you know, we see our dads as loving and also as the potential to be frightening. And he just took that little germ and just exploded it in, in this really elegant, powerful, complex, horrible, beautiful, you know, way. And I think, you know, horror at its best really does that. It really, right. it really touches, you know, our our senses of uh, mortality and mm-hmm. and what happens after we die and how fragile you know our bodies are and and you know can love endure after death and all those important issues that's what horror is about at its best you know so when you saw like i mean apparently you got the grounding in the philosophy so was this kind of thing that after you saw abbott and costello that i mean you just decided to go make a movie you had to experience you had to create this yourself is that what that drive was i mean well i mean i i love all film um, the, the, the film I made after uh, Dead Time Stories, which had some legal problems and hasn't been released, but it's really, it's a, uh, it, it's it's kind of an Altman film. You know, it's more about a, a, a constellation of characters and how they interact. And I'm going to be doing a film, I'm supposed to be actually, if it wasn't for COVID, I'd be shooting a film right now uh, in New York, which is a, a dysfunctional family genre. And there's there's elements of, of horror and repression and, you know, it's, I, I think it's hard to get away from those no matter what you do. But I, I, I wasn't driven specifically to do horror films. I was just driven to make films. And horror, I think, was was a, is a good way in. Yeah. And, and when it's not, I mean, you know, like I, I just saw Silence of the Lambs again. And, you know, just such a beautiful film. So much going on there. Yeah, on every level. Definitely. Now, how does it feel to have this oddball out of left field question? But I'm a I'm a child of the 80s. I was Uh born I was born in 1980, so I grew up during that golden period and going to the movie store as a little kid and looking at all the movies. And then you sneak over to the horror section when mom isn't looking and sitting there staring at all the box art. How does it feel to have one of the most iconic films of the 80s? I mean, like your box art. I looked at it because Justin told me it's like you ever seen Dead Times. like the hell is that? I never seen that. <laughs> saw the box. I was like, oh shit, I remember that movie. That uh-huh. one. Yeah. <laughs> 
Right. How how did you come across that artwork, man? Uh, that was, you know, I don't know who did it. It was it was done by the distributor. It was a company called Cinema Group, which I think they folded a few years after uh, the film was out. Which is why we couldn't make a sequel because nobody no nobody knew who owned the sequel rights. Oh, uh, the company oh, went under, so they weren't there wasn't an entity, but we didn't have it, so we couldn't get money on it. And then by the time uh, you know it, it was a fifteen year window, and after fifteen years years nobody was interested in doing a sequel but you know when it came out the reaction was mixed i mean and even today there are people that just really dig it and there are people that just think that it's just ridiculous and and Mm -hmm. i think it certainly got its flaws and i think if you just look at the flaws yeah doesn't quite work if you look at the its strengths oh it works really well and so i i never saw it as a as a particularly iconic film of the 80s you know to that i i would say the friday series or um a slumber party massacre part two yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of favorite films of that era um so i think there are a lot of films that that i think really stand up i think dead time stories was when we were trying to find a distributor one distributor said that he said you know this is kind of a moron movie that wasn't made for morons and someone else said well, I I don't know what it is. It's, it's either fish or fowl, and wow. and I think <laughs> I think that's. <laughs> I think that's that's pretty much. It's neither fish nor fowl. It's it's its own thing, and some people really, you know, it really works for them, and some people just it doesn't. And you know, that's why we make movies. The movie yep. shouldn't really appeal to everybody because then you're not doing your job. Yeah, but the box art. I mean, I'm telling. That is just like I said. That is one of the most iconic pieces of artwork from that era is uh-huh. that because like I said, I'd never seen the movie it just it was one of you know as a little kid and it was a bad movie so I wasn't able, you know I'd, unless I saw it happen to see it on TV later on I could never specifically pinpoint it but I know that artwork it's just one of those kind of uh-huh. like the uh, Mary Lou prom night 2 or a uh, kiss of the spider woman there's just certain box art you know that jump out at me that I can recognize because I used to confuse dead time stories with vampire journals because the covers uh-huh. are almost similar with vampire journals has the leather bound tome and the skull on it and stuff and it just it's similar but yeah i just i had to know about the box art because like oh i mean hell oh, you uh-huh. got the, you've got the poster behind you yeah. so <laughs> it is a yeah. badass aesthetic <laughs> yeah it's it's over it's over my desk <laughs> um yeah the uh i i don't know who did the art i i loved it as soon as i saw it. i didn't like the copy line you'll, you'll pray for dawn because i thought that was kind of stupid but the art i think is is pretty remarkable oh come on man in hindsight that's a pretty <laughs> badass tag i mean seriously i know i know <laughs> but i mean some things just you have to it, some things get better with age and i am now at the point yeah where i just i kind of enjoy that stuff. all right and here's truth be told my son he uh this is a true story he He's a filmmaker. He mainly focuses on documentaries, but I mean, he's my uh-huh. kid, so he's grown up watching horror. So, like his his favorite movie is The Terminator. His other favorite movie is The Blair Witch, and he uh-huh. watched The Blair uh, yeah, Witch I Project. Think, yeah, he watched yeah. it on VHS and comes walking into to my room and uh, while I'm watching Dead Time Stories before the podcast. So he comes walking into the room. It's like, yeah, I just finished watching Blair Witch. Man, that movie's brilliant. Blah blah blah, it's freaking brilliant. But then he sees the gag with the resurrection scene, the witches and stuff. Uh-huh. He's like, dude, this is gnarly. Who's this? and uh you know just asking about the movie so if you just if you cared you got a 16 year old with it so some things do transcend time and generations <laughs> yeah, but, I, but there are definitely elements here that that really uh still work that, and that i explained to him really that well. you know it's yeah. an indie film this is what you do this and this is back then these dudes had to secure the camera and the film i was telling him about uh did y'all have to do the uh what do they call it whenever you don't get the full you like get the cut ins from the studios like the parts that they don't use they would trim those off did y'all ever have to use any of those i forget the actual term for it outtakes or i 
think I forget what it is. It's like the pieces like of film the, that they don't. What's that, Angelique? Non exposed film. The the ends um, like extra extra feet. <laughs> oh, oh, the, oh, oh the the short ends. You mean? Yeah. yeah. We actually, we we shot with. Um, we were able to buy. That's one thing that we were that I was really focused on was was uh, when you shoot with short ends, you're shooting with from different batches of negative, and there's a color shift. It's a very slight color shift, which is why um, most filmmakers prefer not to. And so we were really focused on getting uh, all of our footage for each scene from the same batch, because uh, otherwise, you know, you'd cut, and suddenly a shot's kind of greenish in hue a little bit, and then it's suddenly kind of orange in hue a little bit, and, you know, that we, we definitely want to to avoid that. Well, that explains a lot because, you know, I watch transfers of, of older movies, you know, cheap yeah. flicks, you know, your, your Corman's or your your AI's or whatever. And, and you definitely see it in some of these horrible DVD transfers on your high def TV. You know, the whole thing is orange and you can barely see their eyes. So that, wow, that you just educated me. <laughs> well, well, some, a, a lot of the old films, they didn't take care of their negative. And so the negative begins to, the colors begin to shift. That's one lucky thing about daytime is that the negative was in a technicolor vault for the whole for 30 years and it was climate controlled and when we got it out the footage was pristine it, it was clean it was it, the colors hadn't shifted and i think that's why the blu-ray looks so terrific uh, oh there's a blu-ray huh yeah it just came out i didn't know there was a blu-ray yeah i'm for real oh yeah we're gonna oh, get the blu-ray yeah. no no oh. i did not know it was a blue holy hell that is awesome yeah okay. yeah it, there's a blu-ray it was put out by shout factories mm -hmm. or screen factory it's yeah. it's gorgeous Oh wow, dude! That is, oh man, yeah, I gotta yeah. see because that I uh, I watched it on Amazon. I kind of I feel oh, cheated now. Well, that I mean that probably is. I mean, I'm sure they're using the uh, the Blu-ray because because the uh, yeah, but I want to hold it. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's gonna have to go in my collection for sure. Yeah, yes, it is in uh, stock uh, right now. <laughs> Well, and, and while, I, while I'm promoting, there's also a, a soundtrack album on vinyl that is coming out, uh, a deluxe edition from a company called uh, Terror Vision Records. In, no shit. In uh, uh, Georgia, in Savannah. Yeah, so uh, you, uh, I think it's going to be out for Halloween, but uh, uh, yeah, Google, Google Terror Vision Records. I'm pulling it up right now. This yeah, is like... I'm right down the road from Savannah, so if there's a oh, release thing, yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. There's Halloween. Yeah, this is... <laughs> Like, yeah, I think we're probably going to be in Savannah during Halloween anyway. So like this. Oh, yeah, we should go. Go. They have a store. Go to the store and demand your copy. Dude, this is <laughs> dude. This is badass. Have they been open long, or how long have they been around? Yeah. Well, well, they actually. I mean, there's. Somebody you should probably check out uh, for your for your podcast because th they have a uh, series where they release soundtrack albums. Okay. And so, uh, okay. Yeah, got that's right up our alley. This is the thing of beauty. Yeah, this is like my new favorite site. Yeah, we will definitely be having them on. That yeah, without question, I will put them on the dude. So yeah, thanks for turning me on to that. But so you say it's coming out on vinyl? Coming out on vinyl. Holy shit! That, okay, that's cool. That that honestly that makes me even more excited than the Blu-ray because <laughs> Amazon's gonna have a good transfer but man you can't beat vinyl <laughs> i've recently yeah, got no, no, it's, it's, i got yeah, a vinyl player yeah. so i'm i'm stoked i am now hooked <laughs> One yeah, of so us. halloween halloween uh 2020 that it's gonna is. have all kinds of cool things like it's got like a poster and probably i don't know a sticker and a toy and 
Oh, yeah. He comes out and grabs you and chokes you around. <laughs> that makes me happy. Gonna it's going to have some cool shit. Yeah, you can hear. All right, so kids, again, we'll we'll circle back on this one too. But uh, y'all just, you know, go look it up on Screen Factory, find Dead Time Stories on Blu-ray, and now Terror Vision Records, which is like one of my new favorite websites that apparently there is oh, yeah. a final coming out soon as well. So you should we walked watch. right by this place. It's on 40th. Did we? <laughs> yeah. I'll be damned. It's probably next to that Russian mafia donut shop that we passed by <laughs> playing the video games. Sorry, completely unrelated topic but it's a true story y'all sorry about that please <laughs> jeff you mentioned to me when we were speaking before the podcast that you were inspired by the uses of enchantment yeah it's a book by a, a, a philosopher i don't know who it was a psychologist called uses of enchantment and he steps through fairy tales from a psychological perspective and he actually on the cover of one of the one of the versions is a picture of uh, red riding hood and the wolf and he uh talks about the metaphors that fairy tales have and that was that was a big influence i, I did a lot of reading about that stuff when i was in school and just kind of i still do now I, i've been actually uh, at some point uh, i'll probably release a book on the elements of storytelling and how anxiety actually is the engine for for telling stories for telling stories and for hearing stories and horror is obviously a big big part of that because horror is the original genre <laughs> yeah dude keep us posted whenever you do yeah for Absolutely. real it's amazing so you know like like they said earlier you obviously got the the philosophical background for horror is there any other subgenre of horror like the slasher film that you'd eventually like to tackle really, I, I like psychological stuff you know I, I like stuff that kind of blurs the lines I don't know if you remember um I mean like Psycho was a good example but like also uh, Polanski's, Polanski's Repulsion oh yeah yeah you know it's just the idea of people that that are so close to the edge that their reality warps and they've you know uh, uh the horror springs from that that fractured psyche so you know i i, I respond to all of that i also like horror that uh as i said like a lot of stephen king stuff but i like horror that takes issues and finds ways to distort them in a really grotesque way that can explore them and also uh, uh, expand them in, into into kind of a visceral reaction. Yeah, yeah. So, are you a fan of like any of uh, Jordan Peele stuff that, that kind of deals with some of that stuff now? I'm, I'm sorry, say again. Are you a fan of like Jordan Peele stuff that sort of deals with water oh, yeah. issues now? Yeah, yeah. I, I think his the way he's able to to, to merge politics and horror is uh, is really right on right on the spot there and i got one more question uh and this is a little off topic but you said you write jingles are uh, you you had a career writing jingles is there any anything that you've written that we would have heard uh there's some i mean the jingle business basically just cratered probably early 2000s so uh but before then i was doing like beer jingles i did like ham's beer uh, which was a, i guess a regional beer spot and i did um local spots around the country so it's it's, it's probable that you might have heard something but i don't know specifically i like i never did coca-cola right right that's an interesting bit of trivia there what would cause it to crater like that i mean the ipod killed us but i mean as far as like the jingles and stuff what i'm just kind of curious of what would cause that to crater like that i i think part of it is just marketing because to have a bunch of people you know standing in front of a mic and singing you know go you know Go drive a Chevy. They're great cars. Um, I, I think that kind of approach to advertising is no longer, you know, oh, works. Okay. So I, I, I think it's just, it's, you know, fashion. You know, you, you don't really hear, you know, when I was a kid, there were all these McDonald's jingles. Right. You, know, you deserve a break today. So get up and get it. I mean, you don't really hear 
stuff like that. So I, I think the, uh, the the world of advertising has shifted to more uh, now that you mentioned organic, it, right? Mm -hmm. And and also I think because of TV, uh, people you know because so the uh, you don't have to watch commercials anymore. Right. I think the advertising is much more about uh, ingraining it in the material and not having specific mm -hmm. obvious commercials. So they're just putting their money elsewhere. Right. So, I mean, it sucked because it was it was a, it was it was a fun career, and I was. I'm really good at writing lyrics. I can I can turn something around in you know the same day. So I would get stacks of ads, hit these bullet points, and then uh, you know I would do it. And I, I kind of miss that. Yeah, I, get I mean that was when I was a kid. One of my biggest goals was I mean it's not about this is about you, not me. I'm just I can relate with what you're saying because when I was a kid, I wanted to be the guy that composed wrestling music like for WWE uh, things like Ultimate Warrior and stuff. I wanted to be the guy that wrote that music. But then you know come the late '90s and 2000s, they started using licensed music corporate bullshit that you hear on the radio and so that was kind of done yeah well i, I mean, I yeah, I mean and, and i think that's true i think i think a, a lot of also our media if you write a book and you're not a celebrity you're you know not as likely to get it published and i think if you want to you know create something uh they're going to go for an you know an established name rather than mm -hmm. to get like a flyer on somebody who's just starting out so it's right. i think it's really unfortunate or, or you stuff. have to establish your ip because you know that's what studios want now is like established stuff but you you know, kind of like you just you have to evolve with it if you do music that has to be your commercial for your other product uh, but i think it's also you know you can put stuff out on the, on the web and maybe it'll catch fire virally so you win you lose so you say you're working on a you were supposed to be shooting a movie i mean have you got anything else that you're working on or building on or wanna you know huh yeah i mean there's a, a bunch of i mean I'm, i've got this movie that i will be doing um and i'm working on a uh i i do a lot of uh, freelance writing for, for clients and I also coach uh, writers like some people have a screenplay and then I'll work with them to develop it so it's pre presentable because oh, uh, okay. when, you, when you you know when you write you're in your own head right. and you wrote mm -hmm. something and you think you know what you've written but when you know you send it out and it turns out what people are what people are reading is not exactly what you think you wrote <laughs> right so, you know i mean we've all had that experience and, and so i'll work with writers that have written either a screenplay or they're about halfway through and they don't know how to finish it and i'm i'm really good at pulling stories out of people because i understand the structure i understand the psychological underpinnings and so i can help people craft stories so i'll do a, a lot of that so I, I mean obviously it's not something you can advertise because right. people don't want people to know that they have somebody helping them write their story but i, I do right. that too and so right. like i do that i got to film that and i'm and i'm working on that book about storytelling uh, which i've been working on for years and i hope to finish it <laughs> Man, dude, I, so. I know <laughs> <laughs> believe me i can completely relate <laughs> jeff before we let you get out of here i gotta ask um you, you clearly you got the little red riding hood in one story you got goldilocks in the other so the first one was that your own amalgamation of hansel and gretel little, your own little take on it no actually that i don't know how it started um i was talking to, to charles shelton he was the writer i had i got a different writer for each and yet because i wanted to have you know a different feeling and we were just talking about images that we like and then you know and we both liked the idea of that kind of gritty medieval fairy tale feel of witches and oh yeah throw eyeballs around and so uh <laughs> that was it's kind of a cheat i guess because it really isn't 
uh, an existing fairy tale, but it yeah. had some images that we liked, and we we ran with them. And just tell people it was a uh, a loose interpretation of Macbeth. That'll right. It, yeah, it yeah. Actually, no, 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 no. I, I take that back. Daniel's right. Do whatever he said. Yep. <laughs> I knew it was Macbeth. I knew, I it the knew whole we time. had a vibe here. I knew yeah. we got it. I'm on the wavelength. The, the weird sisters. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Bubble, bubble, <laughs> toiling. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You're right. I was wrong. <laughs> Stand corrected. Thank you. Don't underestimate your genius. That's oh, right. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have I have a question. I, I asked this of, of all of our guests that we speak to. Um, I am the fiendish foodie uh, here at M3. Um, food and movies goes hand in hand, especially horror movies. What is your go-to movie snack? Ah, that's a really good one. Uh, I... <laughs> Popcorn, of course, is kind of the default, but um, mm-hmm. I also like uh, I like tapioca pudding. Ooh, depending nice on the movie. choice. Okay. Uh, Jeff oh, Dillon wow. Deep. That's a unique one. <laughs> that is, that is. I've choice. Not... Yeah, okay. I haven't had okay. that in a long time, dude. I used to love the hell out of tapioca pudding. Yeah, well, you know, it's I, I actually hadn't either, and, and I found, a, you know, they sell supermarkets now, <laughs> so I, I had some, and I thought, hey, I forgot how good this is. Probably if you awesome. ask me again, you know, if you ask me that question in two months, it'll be something else. But, well, that's <laughs> Fine. That's fine. We'll ask again. You can just, we can make a list. (laughs) Taste change. Yeah. The Jeff Delman movie buffet, you know? (laughs) So you've got the Dead Time Stories Blu-ray on Amazon and everybody, please go there. You need to watch this movie. Buy the Blu-ray. You've got your vinyl coming out in October at Terravision Records, which is really cool. That's a badass company name. Terravision Records for the Dead Time Stories vinyl. Is there anywhere else you'd want to send people? Find out what you do or send them? I have a website. Um, You can find me at uh, Jeff Delman, J-E-F-D-E-L-M-A-N.com my name and i'm you know on instagram and all that stuff so uh, as i do stuff i'll, I'll be announcing them boom there it is all right ladies and gentlemen dead time stories jeff delman justin you gonna take us home jeff we appreciate you for coming on and if you get when you get that book finished and you get that new movie done we'll our doors will be open i appreciate that and i'll uh yeah let's stay in touch yeah it's man please like yes, absolutely you've got a home here <laughs> Seriously, man, thank you so much. You take care, all right? Oh, thank you. Yeah, take care of you guys. All right, all right. Man. Thanks, Jeff. And, all right, thank thanks. You. Madness and magic.